It's Thursday, the 6th of April. In this episode of Going Viral, Professor Nancy Baxter provides a practical explanation of how to judge who should or shouldn't have a COVID booster, which booster to recommend, and why there is increasingly conflicting booster advice emerging from different parts of the world. COVID has not gone away and is currently one of the leading causes of death in Australia. So it's important that we understand the nuances around boosters, the importance of the antivirals and other practical issues. Nancy will also provide a quick update on the influenza situation and how it interconnects with our ongoing COVID response. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Thank you for having me back. Uh, I'm going to be giving you uh, a COVID update today, um, and it's been almost six months since I saw you last. Um, Before um, uh, the last time uh, we met, um, we were seeing a rise in COVID numbers in Australia. So this was before Christmas. Uh, And over Christmas, sadly, we had a fairly large wave. Um, Recently, Paul Kelly, our chief medical officer, gave us some insights into this wave in terms of differences or similarities to previous waves. First of all, it was a longer wave. It didn't peak as high, but it lasted longer, meaning, you know, really what's important is the area under the curve. So there were a, a significant number of hospitalizations, but also, as you can see from this de- uh, this graph, uh, a, a meaningful number of deaths uh, during this time period. Sadly, 830 of these deaths occurred in residential aged care. Uh, And uh, notably, many of those individuals were more than six months since their last dose of COVID vaccine. We had no dominant variant of Omicron. It was the so-called variant soup. Um, And importantly, our use of antivirals increased. So there were 70,000 antiviral scripts written, most of these in residential aged care. Well, what about the future? Uh, Again, I'm coming to you uh, just at the time that things are about to take off uh, with uh, with COVID again. So we're now seeing a rise in COVID numbers after a bit of a lull, after a trough. So this week, there was a 13.5% increase in cases, and that seems to be everywhere in Australia. It's not isolated. Uh, And that's also uh, showing up in an increase in hospitalization. So this is the graph showing hospitalizations in Australia. What you see is you see the... um, uh, waves in the uh, in the distribution, um, but you also see this high baseline. So we have a high baseline rate of, of COVID with a high baseline rate of hospitalizations then coming up in spikes. And last week, there was a 6.1% increase in hospitalizations. So that indicates that we are going to have another wave. Of course, it's uncertain how high we're going to get in that wave, but one is coming. Uh, And what is this wave made up of? So this looks uh, at New South Wales information in terms of um, what the type of variant, uh, subvariant is. Uh, And uh, the pink are the BA5, BA4. And what you can see at the top is BA5 and BA4 are essentially gone. And it's now the era of the recombinant um, uh, uh, virus. So um, the XBB uh, recombinant, so those are B 
BA2 recombinants, so Omicron types, but also recently there's been a rise in a Deltacron variant, so a combination of Delta uh, and uh, Omicron. So uh, again, a mix of variants right now, so there's no single dominant variant, but BA4 and 5 uh, are, are essentially history. Um, so what does the future hold for us? Well, this is a, the a pattern of uh, deaths in the UK. So this is a place that had more widespread uh, community transmission uh, in 2000 and 2001 than we did, um, and then um, had subsequent uh, opening with uh, widespread transmission. And what you can see is a few major waves and then a series of wavelets with numbers of deaths um, not really getting down a low, uh, having a a baseline that's, that's non-zero for COVID. And this may well be where Australia gets to after um, we've had uh, infection of nearly all of the population, which we're getting close to. We don't really know. Each population is different and country comparisons are less useful at this point in time. Well, what about COVID-19 boosters? And I know a lot of you are interested in this because there's been so much reported in the um, in the uh, media and difficult to digest as a practitioner. So very difficult also to digest as a patient and it's becoming harder and harder to be able to help your patients understand what's best for them. Uh, so confused, you're uh, not alone. And I'm gonna just talk to you a little bit about what we know and what's unknown really about, uh, about the impact of boosters at this time point and who should get them. So this uh, is uh, from uh, the US, uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Reporting. And this looks at the impact of bivalent boosters on um, uh, COVID-19 cases and COVID-19 associated deaths. So let's most importantly focus on uh, COVID-19 associated deaths, which obviously are more reliably reported than cases because we're in the era of not really reporting cases anymore. So what, what the um, authors found is that, you know, definitely having a bivalent booster gives you about 14 times protection uh, over not having any vaccination. Uh, and we can see that on the right-hand side. But then in the panel, what we can also see is the benefit of a bivalent booster over monovalent vaccination. So the circles, uh, the empty circles show monovalent vaccination and uh, rates of death. The um, solid circles show the, and blue show the, um, uh, bi the bivalent uh, boosters uh, and the rates of death. Now, these people, these people who had only monovalent vaccination are, are different. This isn't a randomized controlled trial, so they're different likely in terms of risk than those who had bivalent uh, boosters, but still there does appear to be protection from the bivalent boosters against mortality. Um, and, and this is accepted, that there is some benefit of bivalent vaccination against mortality uh, and also the boosters against mortality from COVID, from Omicron variants. Um, and so recently, Atagi in February uh, recommended that the bivalent booster be available um, to, uh, to individuals for use. Um, now, this is the most current recommendation from Atagi, and it's nuanced, so it's not simple, it's not uh, straightforward in terms of every adult being eligible and recommended for boosters. Um, so what are the recommendations? Well, currently, those over 65, 65 and over, uh, the booster is recommended if you've been more than six months since your last dose or more than six months and more than six months since your last infection. Um, for those under age 17, there's no, it's not recommended, but it's 
it's to be considered for those at risk, five to 17, and not recommended for those uh, who have no risk factors. In the middle are the 18 to 64 year olds, where if you're at risk, it's recommended, but if you're at 18 to 64, it's, uh, it's to be considered. Uh, and so I'm gonna spend some time talking about what you can, can, should consider for those 18 to 64 year olds. So um, what kind of impact has, have these recommendations made? Well, sadly, not a lot. So this shows the COVID-19 vaccinations administered over time. And what we see is um, since the recommendations for boosters have been made, uh, we have a little bit of an uptick, but not a lot of an uptick. And that's important because, um, you know, actually a lot of people out there are more than six months since their last booster. Um, well, let's talk about the Atagi recommendations and where they come from. So mainly the recommendations are around time since your last dose and age. Um, why have they made those distinctions? Well, first of all, age. So we know that age is the strongest risk factor for death, for serious, uh, serious infection from COVID-19. So this is a study that looks at um, individuals in the U.S. and the VA. All of these people were vaccinated and what it looks at is uh, people who present with COVID after vaccination and what drove their risk of serious disease. Um, and age was the major predictor of serious disease in this cohort. People over the age of 80 in this group were uh, almost 17 times more likely to have serious disease um, than those, uh, those uh, at, at age uh, 45 to 49. And the cut point seems to be at that age 45 to 49, um, there is a higher risk of disease 50 and over. And, it, and, it, and it's stepwise, so it's not, uh, um, you know, the older you get, the worse your likelihood of severe diseases. Um, also, the thing that was important in this study was how long it had been since individuals had been vaccinated. Not as strong as age, but it was still uh, strong nonetheless. And uh, the longer an individual was since the time of their last dose of vaccine, the, um, the higher the risk of, of serious, severe disease they had if they contracted COVID. So, those two things are important. So that, that's, that explains why there's a cut point for uh, time since the last vaccine dose as well as um, uh, or uh, infection with COVID and also why age is so important in these recommendations. Um, but irrespective of the recommendations, um, you know, what we know is that most patients, actually most people, do not, um, are not up to date with COVID boosters. They, they have been more than six months since their last dose of vaccine. And importantly for those 65 and over, it is you know, definitely the minority of people that are actually up to date with their last booster. So this means there are a lot of people in the community who actually would be eligible for another dose of COVID, would likely benefit from another booster of COVID, and it's recommended by Atagi who are yet to receive uh, uh, another dose of COVID vaccine. Um, and importantly, this extends to residential aged care, which, which frankly I find uh, very concerning. So when you look at individuals in residential aged care, only 30.6% are up to date with the Atagi recommendation. So uh, are less than six months since their last um, booster or their last COVID infection. So that means you have almost 70% of residents of aged care still at risk that could their risk could be lowered with a dose of COVID, uh, a COVID booster. So the, and put another way, of those eligible for a COVID booster, less than 10% 
have received it. So that means 90% of individuals in residential aged care um, are still waiting for that booster more than six months uh, after their last. And you know, we are now kind of getting into the next wave of COVID. So it is so important that we reach those people and we get them boosted because that will save lives in residential aged care guaranteed. Uh, the more of those people that we can get boosted, the lower the death rate will be and the hospitalization in that group of patients. So very important that we get individuals in residential aged care boosted. Important, quite important, that we get people who are most at risk over age 65, those who are immunocompromised, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, people over the age of 50. Very important that we get those folks uh, boosted prior to this next wave coming. Um, but what about the rest? What about that 18 to 64 that we're told to consider um, giving the booster to? What do we advise them? And 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 what information can we give them to help them make decisions? Well, one of the important things um, to consider is um, uh, how many people have already had COVID. And so there, there's a concept of hybrid immunity, and it is real in terms of the added protection of both being um, vaccinated for COVID and having contracted COVID. So this is uh, information from Australian blood donors and looks at um, um, how many individuals have antibodies indicating they have contracted COVID. And this is over time. The first surveillance was done in, um, in February, March of 2022. And there have been three since that time, the last um, being in November and December. So, you know, around the time when the last wave was close to peaking. And what you can see is that over 70% of Australians have antibodies that indicate they have contracted COVID. And this is an underrepresentation, so it doesn't um, um, identify every single person who's had COVID. So we now have the, the great plurality of individuals in Australia have been exposed to COVID. You can see that does decline with age though, likely because people in the older age group who have more risk of COVID um, are better protecting themselves and, and are likely in, in situations at work, at school um, that don't expose them to COVID as much. So there's still a real significant number of people, particularly those at higher risk of serious disease and death from COVID who remain novids. Um, but the majority of us have had COVID, meaning we have been vaccinated, have had COVID, so we have hybrid immunity. And what does that mean? Well, hybrid immunity does seem to give you better protection than either vaccination or having the disease without vaccination alone. Uh, and this is a um, meta-analysis of a number of studies that tried to quantify what the benefit of uh, Im hybrid immunity is over um, vaccination without infection or uh, infection uh, without vaccination. Um, and first, uh, when we look at um, hospital admission or severe disease, hybrid immunity are the blue lines up top, and you can see that you have a very good uh, protection against hospital admission and severe disease, and that is for a long period of time, so eight months and not very much waning. You see there's waning of the, um, uh, the orange lines, which are vaccination only, and a lower level of protection from infection only. So hybrid immunity, better than any of those. 
In terms of any infection, and remember some of this is, um, is confounded by the fact that we are tracking infection less well now than we did in the past, uh, what you see again is a waning of everyone. So whether you have hybrid immunity, whether you have not been vaccinated and have had COVID, or whether you're relying on vaccine immunity only, you have waning to the risk of any infection over time since the last uh, your, your last encounter with uh, either uh, COVID vaccination or uh, COVID itself. Um, and to the point where uh, at six months, if it's a, a vaccine, you don't have much um, protection. With hybrid immunity, you have more, but still a rapid waning. Um, so with our hybrid immunity, we have good protection for a long time over, against hospitalization and death, uh, but waning against infection, which, which we all know. We know how, how frequently people get COVID again uh, and, um, uh, and that there's a limit that vaccines can, can, can help us protect from that. Um, and so hybrid immunity, we have good protection against serious disease. We know that even with hybrid immunity that um, age remains a major factor in terms of predicting who will have severe disease or not from, uh, from infection. And this is borne out by this, which looked at um, the age distribution of individuals who died during the COVID wave. Um, so you can see uh, Omicron wave over toward the right. Um, and the majority of individuals who died of COVID were over age 70. So very few people vaccinated population under age 70 died of COVID. Still a lot of people died, so there were people who died at age 60 to 69 of COVID, but it was a relatively small number. So part of the balancing that Atagi is doing is looking at, you know, yes, a booster would reduce the risk of dying for those under 59, um, but the absolute risk, the actual risk that people have is very low. So even if you reduce it, you're only really helping a small number of people. So in terms of severe disease, that balance between um, you know, helping but not helping very many and the potential risks, which really are the same, even from the first dose to the, to the, to the fifth dose, um, uh, whether that balance has changed. And Atagi has determined that balance has changed and that's why we have the new recommendations. So what about boosters for 18 to 64? What should you um, consider and what should you talk to your patients about? Well, you know, as I said, the absolute benefit for prevention of hospitalization and death for those under 65 is small. Um, so we see the major bang for the buck is in the older population. That's the main risk factor for, um, for co serious COVID-19. Um, but remember, 18 to 64 age range, it's not homogenous in terms of its risk. If you remember that VA study graph that I showed, you know, the cut point is at 50 and your risk increases after age 50. So your 50 year old in this age group will be more at risk than your 18 year old of dying of COVID and your 64 year old will be even more so. So, you know, talking to people about their risk should be different for those 18 year olds than those who are age 50. Um, and remember, we talked about hybrid immunity and a lot of these recommendations are based on hybrid immunity and that, you know, being more effective for protection against severe disease uh, um, than, than vaccination alone. But we still have NOVIDs and we saw that, that graph looking at the percentage of people who have evidence of having contracted COVID. Uh, we still have people that have never had COVID. And for those people, vaccination and keeping up with vaccination is more important because we have waning.
over severe disease um, uh, and death, uh, and those are the people that are going to be affected. So if the individual that you're talking to really does not believe they've had COVID, that's a person that really should be considering getting a booster if they're six months from their last. Now, um, we know there's substantial waning with time uh, in terms of protection from infection. That's no matter what you have, hybrid, um, only uh, infection, only vaccination. Um, now, we know that the, the benefits of boosting are really limited in terms of um, protection from infection because the duration is limited. But during a wave, which is coming up, there may be some benefit from boosting. We are soon going to see COVID everywhere, like we've seen before. Uh, and so there may be some benefit to boosting uh, during this time period, particularly for people that are, are quite concerned about getting COVID, someone who's had previous severe COVID, um, somebody who um, is, is just in general worried about their health. Um, now, this, this is a challenge. This is a challenge for general practitioners in terms of having meaningful conversations with their patients. Uh, and I think one of the important things to note with your patients is that, you know, we are while we're in our fourth year of COVID, uh, things are changing regularly. We're learning about this disease. We're learning about immunity to this disease. So we're likely going to be changing recommendations over time. Um, and that's even if the variant doesn't change. So if there's significant changes in the variant, then, then this will definitely change. So it's challenging to have a clear message to patients. It's important to be honest with patients about the fact that, you know, over time, these recommendations are going to change, but this is what we, um, you know, Atagi and experts believe is best for folks right now. Well, what about the risk? So, you know, again, it's a balance between the potential benefits of vaccination and the risks. Now, the potential benefits have decreased, particularly in um, those uh, under age 65 and those with this hybrid immunity, but the risks remain. And what are they? COVID-19 vaccines are very safe, but what are the risks of uh, the boosters? So this looks at um, uh, vaccine safety reporting in Australia and looks at commonly reported side effects for the bivalent Moderna and Pfizer. So both of these are going to be in the booster situation. Um, so side effects from Moderna seem to be higher in the 40% range from Pfizer, about the 30% range. Most are mild. Less than one in 100 people report seeing their GP or attending the emergency department in the days after vaccination. Um, the number of people who missed work, it's slightly higher or usual duties. So about one in 20 people after a Pfizer dose and one in 10 people after a Moderna dose. So while these are minor, um, side effects, they're not zero, uh, and it does mean uh, a loss of work and productivity for folks. So this is something to consider when people are thinking about whether they should be vaccinated or not. Um, you know, most people are, are uh, aware of the, the minor uh, reactions to vaccines at this point, um, but it is something for people to consider. Um, but what about myocarditis and pericarditis? So these are the things we worry about most. In general, these are um, factors that happen to uh, individuals less than 30 years of age. And again, males, males are more at risk of myocarditis and pericarditis after vaccination, um, particularly with mRNA vaccination um, than women. And so just the rate is higher, particularly in men. But this is an interesting study that's recently been published that looked at um, deaths in young people in England, uh, uh, looked at deaths after uh, COVID vaccination and looked at deaths after COVID. 
Um, so there are 380, uh, uh, 800 deaths in these individuals during the time period. Um, and what they found, uh, they looked at all-cause registered death and cardiac registered death. The blue dot is overall, showing no difference in either all-cause death or uh, uh, registered death in the 12 weeks after vaccination. You actually see the risk is slightly lower for all-cause deaths in week, the first week after vaccination, but then uh, basically is no different. When you look at this by age group and by sex, uh, what you can see is there are some subtle differences, but really no major difference. When you break it down further by the type of vaccine, interestingly, there is a significant increase in cardiac death for women after their first non-mRNA vaccine, which in this case would have been AstraZeneca, so that, that was the non-mRNA vaccine available in the UK at the time, which uh, gives one additional death for every uh, 16,500 vaccinated. This is not, no longer being used, so not, not a concern, but, but there was a significant increase in cardiac death in that age group. In men, the difference was non-significant, the increase in cardiac death after the second mRNA dose. Um, and if you believe that relative risk to be true, that would mean there's one additional death in every 350,000 people vaccinated. Um, although, you know, it's not a statistically significant difference. So although there truly is an increase in myocarditis and pericarditis, particularly in men, it doesn't seem to result in a high rate of cardiac deaths. Um, still, it's important to consider and why, you know, the 18 to 29-year-olds, I think, should be thought of quite differently than your 30 to 50-year-olds um, and your 50 to 65-year-olds when you're actually talking to people about the risks and benefits of boosters. Now, some people may come to you to talk about Novavax, um, so this is just a little bit of information about Novavax in the Omicron era. We have limited uh, availability of information for Novavax because you know, it's not widely used, um, but this actually looks at antibody response um, to Omicron um, by a Novavax, uh, looking at um, two, two doses and three doses, two doses, the empty circles, three doses, the green circles. And what you can see is in earlier versions, uh, uh, the original uh, on the left uh, and beta, um, you have a good antibody response um, with, uh, with one, uh, two doses uh, and a good antibody response with three. What you see with Omicron, with Novavax, is that the um, antibody response isn't great after two doses or is lower after two doses than for the original variant. But with three doses, it actually gets up to reasonable levels uh, and levels that are highly protective. So if folks want Novavax vaccination, they should have the three doses. So many of you may have seen um, the WHO SAGE roadmap. So this is the WHO's uh, advising committee on, on vaccination. Um, and they recently um, produced a recommendations, March 30th, on uh, a roadmap for the use of COVID-19 vaccine in the context of Omicron and substantial population immunity. It's also in the context of rising prices for vaccination, an already low vaccination rate in many countries, and as well a reducing vaccination rate, a reducing focus on childhood vaccination. So context is important, and these are recommendations that SAGE is making for the world. So what SAGE does is divides folks into high-risk, high-priority use groups, medium-priority risk groups, and low-priority risk groups. These align somewhat with ATAGI recommendations, but incompletely. So let's talk about it. 
Um, so first of all, that has target populations, um, older adults, younger adults with significant comorbidities. So older adults here, it depends on recommendations for individual countries, cutoffs being 50 to 60, depending on um, um, the local context. Uh, and in this situation, SAGE, not ATAGI, is recommending the primary booster series and then um, uh, boosters 12 months after previous doses. Uh, for older adults, the oldest of adults, so those um, you know, elderly, uh, those with many comorbidities, higher, very high risk for serious disease after, after COVID-19, uh, a six-month interval is recommended. And this is to focus on most efficient uses of COVID-19 vaccines that have the greatest impact on reducing deaths. Again, context is important in terms of what an individual country wants to focus on. As well, there are groups with special considerations, so um, children, and adolescents with, um, uh, and adults with uh, immunocompromised, uh, pregnant adults and uh, frontline health workers would be recommended for uh, vaccination. So the medium priority groups. So these are individuals with a slightly higher risk, uh, but not a high risk uh, after they've received their primary series dose, healthy younger adults and children. So uh, primary series is recommended, but SAGE is not at this point recommending additional booster doses because the additional booster dose benefit in terms of prevention of serious disease or death is limited. And that's based on that absolute risk in hybrid immunity. Hybrid immunity, already very protective. And so even if the booster's effective, same relative risk, the absolute reduction, because the risk of death is so low, the absolute reduction is going to be small. So the benefit of that vaccine for, um, for a country is limited. Now, for an individual, it might not be if you happen to be the small, uh, one of the small number of individuals who does get very sick from COVID, and that could have been prevented. And then there's the low priority group. So these are individuals who have a, um, uh, uh, these are generally children, individuals who, and adolescents, so have a very low risk of um, having serious uh, consequences of COVID and having a uh, uh, already high level of immunity from infection and also having potential complications related to myocarditis and pericarditis uh, with the use of, um, of mRNA vaccines. So in here, um, the primary series and boosters are based on uh, individual country considerations and additional booster doses are not routinely recommended. Now this is very different to, to the current ATAGI recommendations and um, for some age groups has limited relevance because we are already highly vaccinated. Um, but again, taking into account um, the, the, the risks to the individual populations and the context, so the benefits in terms of cost and reduction of serious disease. Um, none of these talk about reductions in risks of long COVID uh, or other potential um, uh, challenges associated with COVID-19. Again, this is because we're just acquiring data on the influence of um, all of these things, uh, including boosters on rates of long COVID. So again, these recommendations may confuse your patients and may confuse you. They, they um, just seem to come all of a sudden, um, but they do relate to this balance between benefit and cost, which is, are going to be very different for different countries, the potential impact in the population, the risks for the individuals, uh, the time required uh, and the challenges required to deliver the vaccine and overall looking at the value. So very context dependent. So I think you're no longer going to have real harmony between recommendations from country to country on vaccine uh, on vaccines or boosters um, simply because 
um, the balancing of cost and risk very different for different countries at this point in time. Well, what about the flu? We're now getting into flu season. Uh, we know that flu is being diagnosed in, um, in Australia. It's being diagnosed at about the rate of 2019 and 2020 prior to the lockdown. So the flu is here. Um, and what we don't want to happen uh, is a triple-demic, and that is potentially going to happen. We don't know, but it did happen in the United States this year, although fortunately it was fairly short-lived. And that, that is um, a period of time where you had fairly high rates of hospitalization for COVID, the flu, and for RSV. Um, definitely as we go into the winter months, we are at risk of, of having a triple-demic, which really puts strain on our healthcare system. Um, similar individuals at risk for hospitalization from COVID and the flu in the adult population. The flu, of course, also high risk in the younger population. So there are things that we can do about it in terms of making sure those high, 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 at highest risk of COVID and the flu are vaccinated. We know that vaccine rates from the flu uh, last year uh, was better than 2021, um, but still there, there is an opportunity to improve uh, with, um, with uh, you know, less than, um, uh, generally less than 70% rates of uptake in over 65s, those at most risk, and also low uptakes in, um, in children who also are at high risk. So important to focus on those high risk groups. So, um, Flu vaccination recommended for all people um, greater than six months of age. Importantly, flu and COVID vaccines may be co-administered on the same day, which gives an important opportunity to get those at higher risk, both up to date with their booster for COVID, as well as their flu vaccine. Um, the data on co-administration with childhood vaccinations is limited, and so um, it, it may be um, may be better to uh, separate administrations for age-appropriate vaccination uh, with the flu vaccine, but definitely for everyone else, uh, co-administration is just fine, saves the visit, and uh, makes it, uh, makes it a, a, a better opportunity to really protect everyone from, um, from the risk of uh, that triple-demic. So what about treatment? So just to talk uh, briefly about treatment. So these are, this is the pattern for PBS prescriptions for oral COVID-19 treatments by age group. Uh, and so we can see we're, we're getting more familiar, better used to using these antivirals. Um, and they tend to track with the course of disease, obviously, is when there are more cases, there are more prescriptions. And most of these prescriptions are for those over age 70, which is the group where um, it is on the PBS without any risk factors. Now, interestingly enough, most of these um, scripts, most of these were delivered uh, in residential aged care. So there's still a large number of individuals who are at risk of serious disease from COVID who would benefit from antivirals. So as we're kind of gearing up for the next wave, um, you know, I challenge you um, to, to um, see what we can do about increasing access to these antivirals. Um, and we know that you are getting more familiar with them, uh, although there is, you know, we're in a lull, so most people um, are currently not prescribing. So this is a health ed survey that was sent out uh, March 3rd, and that was at a point of lull. So many of you wouldn't be seeing as much COVID as you've seen before. Um, but, uh, but what it shows is that uh, about 70% have not prescribed Paxlovid or Legavero in the past week. Now, many of you have, and many of you actually, uh, some of you have prescribed more than 10. So some of you are real, really comfortable uh, with uh, prescribing um, these uh, medications. Um, 
But what we need to do is get everyone comfortable with prescribing, particularly prescribing Paxlovid, because Paxlovid is effective. Um, so we had randomized trials, both of Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, Lagavero, um, that showed a reduction in all-cause mortality and hospitalization. Um, Paxlovid did appear to have a stronger impact on mortality than, um, than Molnupiravir, but both were effective. Now, this was in um, an unvaccinated group uh, and also pre-Omicron. So what we've been trying to find out in with a variety of means is um, what is the effectiveness now that the risk of serious severe disease is lower because it's Omicron and people are vaccinated. So this is some, uh, in, some data from Hong Kong, which looked at um, uh, groups of people who received Paxlovid and matched them to people who did not, and then groups of people who received Molnupiravir and matched them to people who did not, and looked at the impact on uh, mortality and hospitalization. So a strong effect of uh, Paxlovid uh, with a strong reduction in all-cause mortality, similar to that uh, in, um, in the trials. Uh, uh, Molnupiravir also appeared to be effective, although a lesser effect um, uh, than, than Paxlovid. Uh, in Israel, similarly, Paxlovid uh, resulted in a reduction in hospitalization. Um, the reduction in hospitalization was primarily for uh, individuals for um, uh, over age 65, but it was effective in those who had not been immunized and those who had either been immunized or had had COVID before. So Paxlovid is effective in the real world and does seem to be more effective than molnupiravir. So we now have evidence from a randomized control trial looking at molnupiravir. So this is the panoramic trial, which is a pragmatic trial looking at a variety of treatments for COVID. Uh, and this is the publication that centered around use of Paxlovid. So panoramic included uh, individuals that were at higher risk of serious disease uh, and death from COVID. So individuals 50 years or older who had a comorbidity that would make them at higher risk. Still not a high risk cohort. They weren't um, all people who were over age 75. Uh, but they were at higher risk. And so comparing individuals who received uh, molnupiravir versus usual care, the trial showed no difference in treatment effect in terms of the primary outcome of hospitalization and death. Now, one of the criticisms of this study is, although they were considered a high-risk group, they were actually quite low risk for hospitalizations or death with a, only a small number of people, uh, about 1%, um, being, uh, having those outcomes. When you looked at other outcomes uh, in panoramic, um, this was a different story. So when you looked at secondary outcomes like reported recovery, uh, early sustained recovery, days to recovery, alleviation of symptoms, how long it took for people to feel better, all of these things were improved with molnupiravir. So it does appear to have an effect, but it just, I guess, depends on what effect you're going for. And in terms of the expense of molnupiravir, um, you know, the balance between uh, costs and benefits leads to a fairly restricted number of people where, where that drug is useful uh, or, or recommended. Uh, and importantly, because of that panoramic study, um, Lagviro or molnupiravir is recommended uh, uh, only if uh, Paxlovid is not considered suitable or available. So it's important to remember Paxlovid does seem to be more effective. There hasn't been a head-to-head, -head, but it does seem to be more effective, uh, and therefore um, it should be the preferred medication to molnupiravir. Uh, importantly, Many prescriptions in Australia currently are Ligvero uh, or Molnupiravir. So considering um, increasing the use of, of Paxlovid uh, is important uh, amongst GPs.
So um, on, from April 1st, so from um, a few days ago, uh, the uh, eligibility criteria for a Paxlovid, Paxlovid only on the PBS, has expanded. So Paxlovid has been available to those 70 years and older, regardless of risk factors, for some time. Uh, but now 66 to 69, instead of requiring two risk factors, only require one. And I think that this is a great change because it means we can really expand eligibility of Paxlovid to a younger age group who are still at a, a meaningful um, risk of serious disease. Uh, for those older age, 50 years or older, you have a similar um, recommendations in terms of requiring two additional risk factors. Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people age 30 or older with one risk factor. Uh, of course, people who are immunocompromised, but also importantly, people aged 18 or older who've been previously hospitalized for COVID-19 disease. So people who have been more severely infected affected in the past from COVID, uh, the recommendation is that those people have eligibility for Paxlovid as well. So it's really important if we want that the hump of that curve that we saw over the Christmas holidays in terms of mortality to be lower still, um, what we need to do is to get Paxlovid to every person who is eligible for it because that will have an influence on how many people we see dying of Paxlovid during this wave. So, you know, we need to address Paxlovid underutilization, and I have no conflicts with this company, uh, but, you know, we did see use uh, increase with expansion of eligibility, so hopefully use will increase with expansion of eligibility now. Importantly, um, use of uh, antivirals seems to be largely in um, uh, long-term uh, aged care, um, so important that we go beyond that to make sure it's getting out to seniors who are in the community who could benefit. It's still very challenging to administer, and I'm not going to diminish that. It's hard because patients, first of all, need to know it's an option. They need to test themselves within five days, and they need to get to the doctor, and they need to get a script and get it filled within those five days. So I'm not underestimating the challenge with this, um, but I think it, it's very important if we really do want to improve mortality at this point, because we know that although boosters will get us so far, that we're still going to have a gap. Um, so I think, importantly, make a plan with eligible patients, get them boosted, and then make a plan for if they do contract COVID, assume that they'll contract it, and make sure they have access quickly um, to Paxlovid. You've gone over their medications, you know that they're eligible, or you know how to manage their medications uh, if they need Paxlovid, and, uh, and you have uh, ability to get them a prescription quickly. And that's it. So I want to thank you for your attention. Uh, and as always, um, stay safe and uh, continue to do the fantastic work you do to, to, uh, with your patients uh, and are really critical to helping us manage the pandemic with the smallest number of people getting severely ill or dying. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on 
self-claim.